Hi, everyone, and here we are, celebrating what people love to do creatively. I'm Rod Jones. And I'm Angie Jones. Welcome to the Thought Road Podcast. We invite you to subscribe wherever you listen, and we are available virtually anywhere you listen to podcasts. That's right. No matter what you do creatively, this is the podcast for you. Well, what are we discussing today? Well, today we're going to be speaking with Linda Winter about saying yes in your life and what it can bring to you creatively. You know, our guests always manage to share an aspect of creativity, a lot of times things that we don't even think about. And I really can't wait to hear what she has to say. But how about starting out with our quote? Okay, our quote this week is... Everybody has a talent. It's just a matter of moving around until you discovered what it is. Who said that? George Lucas said this of Star Wars fame. I wonder what that meant to him. I don't know. I mean, I feel like he's not saying that you need to move somewhere physically. I feel like he's saying you need to move around maybe mentally and inside about what what you're trying out in your life. Well, he's certainly extremely creative. I mean, nobody could argue with that. And I suspect that he did move a few times, Mm -hmm. but that was probably completely contingent upon technology. Mm-hmm. To build and do what he had done, he needed technology, and he needed to find those resources, and True. he needed to work with those resources. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure he's traveled. I know some of his very early, early movies mm-hmm. that he played with, even I think in school, high school, right? I, I think so, yeah. yeah. And very innovative guy. But you're probably right. Maybe it's a matter of moving around maybe inside your head. Perhaps, or even just trying maybe different careers or different situations until, you know, you get a resonance of, I don't want to say success, but of things feeling like there's a flow going on. Yeah, and when doors start to open, you, but when those doors start opening, you want to be prepared for those doors. Absolutely. Okay, so now it's time for our semi-new segment at this point. It is called Rod's Motivational Moment. So what do you have for us today? I'm going to kind of go a little in the opposite direction, maybe. My thing is you should bloom where you're planted. That is opposite, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah. Well, so many times people think, oh, well, the grass is greener over there, right? That's an old, tired statement. But we think, oh, well, I'll be happier. I'll be so much better. I'll be successful if I do this or I do that or if I move here or if I move there. Mm -hmm. And that... Sometimes I suppose that's true, but more often than not, you better figure out who you are, what you are, and what you want to do right exactly where you are today. Now, if you're living in an area what's not particularly safe and you're struggling and you want to get the heck out of there, I can understand that. But for the most part, people think that things are going to be just better. Artists always say, oh, if I just had a bigger studio. Well, the reality is paint in the studio that you have and be happy that you even have a studio because a lot of people don't. True. Uh, That's very true. Being creative where you actually are right now today is really important. So that's why I kind of go along with this bloom where you're planted. What do you think? Well, you know, I I think you have a point there because if you're just moving for the sake of moving because you feel like you can't make it happen, I think you need to dig deep inside of you and figure out why you're not making it happen because it shouldn't matter where you are. But there are occasions where I think, you know, maybe the environment is just not 
helping you to grow and you are becoming stagnant or, you know, you don't have the opportunities that maybe you would need in a city, say, because you need to have resources of a city, then, yeah, I could see that being a, a thing. Or maybe you are in a city and you need to get the heck out of there because it's just too much stimulation and you cannot, you know, deal with all the hectic pace. I mean, there are occasions of, I don't want to say that it's disgruntledness, but it's a little bit of, you know, you need to make a a slight adjustment to really kind of feed your inner creativity. Interesting that you should say that because back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, people left the farm to go to the city to land a job, to get a better job. They didn't want to spend the rest of their life uh, in a rural area or on a farm. Yeah, and they were just kind of tired of being in the same environment well, they all the felt time. Like, you know, they felt like maybe in some cases nobody understood them or they couldn't be expressive mm-hmm. yeah. or they couldn't, you know, they wanted to go, quote, unquote, where the action is. Yeah. Now, because of all that's happened, people want to get the heck out of a city yeah. and move back to a more rural place so they can find themselves spiritually or, in many cases, be more creative. I, I can assure you, that you can be creative no matter where you are. You could be creative in in Manhattan or Mm -hmm. you could be creative in Lenexa, Kansas. So true. You know, I guess it just, it's very individual and you have to determine, is this this a good move for you or not? Yeah, but I get back to what I said, you know, Bloom, even though this is kind of opposite of of the person we're going to be chatting with today. Yeah, it is. But First off, bloom where you're planted. Be thankful you are where you are. Be thankful you have what you have. Mm-hmm. Learn to use the assets that are readily available to you right exactly where you are now. And the doors will open. You know, you'll be guided. Something will happen that mm-hmm. says, oh, you know, now is the time for me to make that big move. Yeah, and you can go with the flow and see where that takes you because sometimes it's very unexpected where you end up. So, okay, let's hear what our guest has to say. Linda, welcome to the Thought Row podcast. Both Inchi and I have been really looking forward to chatting with you today. Hi, Linda. So good to have you with us today. That's lovely. Thank you. It's lovely to be there halfway around the globe. It's true. Yeah, isn't that amazing? <laughs> and it's uh, morning time for us and early evening for you. It is. It is. Yeah. Linda, I met you through LinkedIn and I've really enjoyed all your illustrations and your posts. In fact, the one you posted today, I thought was really quite interesting, the comparison. And I hope people that are on LinkedIn check you out on LinkedIn because you're a good person to follow. Yeah. And I, I know that Rod had introduced me to you on LinkedIn. So it's finally good to chat with you and put a voice to your beautiful illustrations. But, you know, before we move on, I want to ask you our question uh, that we ask everybody, which is, what did you have for breakfast today? I had eggs for breakfast, and I have eggs every morning for breakfast. Michael, my husband, cooks them for me. The eggs in Italy are absolutely sublime. Oh, I bet. The farm eggs, right? Yes. Yeah, how lucky for you. Yes, so lucky. That would be nice to have fresh eggs. They're all purchased in the um, village greengrocers. Oh, how nice. So just right there in the village, so... They've grown up in that atmosphere, so you're getting all the nutrients. Yeah, and they're healthy and happy. You know, we know, I know from from talking to you and what I've seen you post, uh, your career as an artist, it expands over 30 years. When did you first discover that you wanted to be an artist? Well, I was 
I was actually six, and I, I have I have two brothers, of which one I'm really close to, and he was very unhappy little boy, and he came indoors and wouldn't play outside with all the other kids like I was playing with, and my mother gave him a pencil and some paper and said, "Off you go, go and draw." And, and he did, and he turned out to be extremely good. And I was jealous, so <laughs> I started drawing as well. And the um, the competition has spurred me on ever since. So I suppose, really, I've been painting and drawing for 50-odd years, and it's always been there. It's, sometimes I try and bury it, and sometimes I try and pretend to be something else. But at heart, I have and always will be a painter and an artist. How oh, wonderful. Yeah. Does your brother still paint or draw? Yes, yes, he's he's head of painting at Brighton School of Art in England. So he does he does paint a little, but his key his main thing in life is photography. Oh, beautiful! He takes oh. Photographs of the starling murmurations off of Brighton Pier. Oh, how interesting! Those are so beautiful. I can see why he would do that. So, Melinda, are you then a self taught artist, or have you gone to school? You're one of the lucky ones if you are. Yeah, you are if you're if, if yep, you're self taught. I am. I am completely self taught. Again, this was rebellion on my part. I was offered <laughs> a, a place at art school, but I didn't want. To, although I wanted to be an artist like my brother, I didn't want to be an artist like my brother. Mm-hmm. So uh, I I went off in loads of different random directions. Started off looking at engineering and was very bad at that ended up having a family when I was 19. Oh, oh my okay. goodness. That's so wonderful. Well, so being self-taught, I know I am and Inchi is. Yeah. What would you consider to be your biggest challenge uh, being a self-taught artist? I know we have a lot of listeners out there that are self-taught. Yeah, that are self-taught. And they always like to know what other artists have gone through. So tell us about what you think your biggest challenge was. Initially, it's the thing of provenance. If you haven't gone to art school and you haven't been taught to do something people go well you've never been taught you've never been taught the skills Mm -hmm. but that actually then becomes a bonus because if you persist and you become more and more focused and more and more skilled the thing is you're painting like yourself not like your teacher exactly and I think that's that's the most important thing is my paintings are mine and nobody else's. That's a very valid point. And there's very been good point. there's been some really famous, famous artists like Francis Bacon for one. He always said, If I had gone to art school it would have ruined my creativity. And I can see in your work there's a tremendous amount of originality to it. And also I think so many people that have gone to art school have to unlearn what their teachers have taught them so they can have their own voice and their own artwork instead of copying what the art teacher has taught them. So very valid point, Linda. That's that's very much the case. Even my brother has said that I'm fortunate not having been taught and I have my own hand as opposed to sundry other people's. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. You know, we know you're now living in Italy and that's probably going to be an interesting story. How, How did you end up living in Italy? You lucky. You're very lucky. Lucky, <laughs> very lucky. It was accidental. It, uh, the short version: I was uh, well, both Michael, who's my second husband, and myself were terribly upset with the Brexit vote. Mm-hmm. We've always considered ourselves to be Europeans. We've been married now for getting on for ten years, but at the time, so it was sort of six or seven, and we travelled a lot. And the thought of not being able to come and go as we pleased was so disappointing. But we started to look for somewhere. 
I actually had an argument at school with my then boss and, and that sort of really kicked things off. So I saw a job advert for the school that I work at now in Padova and they wanted an, an art and psychology teacher, which is really weird because that's actually what I am. And so at the time, Michael said, oh, go on, just apply for it. And I applied and forgot about it because they did not. And then the, the urge to travel kicked in before Brexit and to look for somewhere else. And I took sure. voluntary mm-hmm. redundancy from work. And we were actually going to go to France. And Michael had a little bit of a wobbly and said, I don't speak French. I mean, he speaks even less Italian. And so do I. And then the job came back and uh, they said, well, it's yours, basically, if you can get here in five weeks. So we packed up our flat in London anyway. And we had to get back to my house in Plymouth and we packed up, got in the car and managed a week in the south of France as well and drove to Italy. Oh, you drove there too. Wow. What an adventure. Yes, it was. Road trip and timeline. I mean, it was just so rapid. Well, and packing up all your belongings and saying we're going to have a new life in five weeks. That's uh, pretty challenging, I would think. It was a bit epic, yeah. Yeah, I bet. (laughs) Now, you just mentioned that you teach psychology. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Okay. I've I've sort of done it for 20 years. 18 of those were in England in various schools. And then I came here on the same ticket. It was a long story not worth going into, but essentially I needed something that would earn me a living and a pension. Mm-hmm. So when my youngest was 12, I went to university and got a psychology degree at the time the only sensible thing I could think of doing was teaching it and I that's what I've done ever since so interestingly enough at the time I couldn't qualify as a psychology teacher because Mm -hmm. there was no no mechanism for doing that so I actually qualified as an art teacher with nothing more than an o-level in art and a good portfolio Hmm. That's very interesting. Yeah, that kind of leads me to my question a little bit about teaching psychology. And you just mentioned that you teach psychology along with art, I believe. I'm I'm a trained art teacher, but I don't teach art. Okay. Mm -hmm. So has psychology helped you with your artistic life? Actually, yeah, surprisingly it has. Because one of the things we do, I mean, the the level of psychology you teach youngsters in a sixth form is quite small. Um, but it's an introduction for them. But you look at the biology involved in psychology, and we spend a lot of time actually looking at learning. And when you understand how neural connections work and the mm-hmm. fact that you have to practice to actually develop a skill, it starts to make sense the fact that with painting and drawing, you have to keep doing it. You can't, you won't just suddenly produce a marvelous work of art, it comes with time. Oh, good point. Yeah, that's a very good point. uh, The the other thing that's really interesting is that we have something called a pineal gland. Right. And in people who paint and draw, it becomes terribly well developed. Normally, people don't use it very much. It's very redundant. But what it allows you to do is to hold an image in your head. So, you know, when people, you, you watch people who don't draw very often, they have to keep looking up and down at whatever they're drawing and they get very frustrated by it. But if you do it a lot, you can hold the image in your head and then reproduce it. So, so you know, there's a lot of biology in being a painter. 
I like that. You know, I'm very familiar with the pineal gland, but I never really thought about the yeah the uh, visual test, aspect. The visual yeah. aspect. I mean, you read about it and you understand it. And there's actually some exercises that you could do to improve it. Mm-hmm. But yes. you just you just shared with us the fact that painting or drawing or I assume other creative skills mm-hmm. like playing the piano or whatever. So you're telling us that that improves its overall health biologically. Yes. Yeah. And it help, what it does is every time you do something and you do it again, you build another neural connection. You're, you're constantly rewiring your mind, your brain. So that's why when you're really working hard at something, it sort of metaphorically hurts. Okay. That's very interesting. Hmm. So you would suggest that people that listen to this podcast and are creative, they should think about how they're retraining their mind is that what you would suggest very much so and don't it's it's worth traveling with a notebook and a pencil or a pen in your pocket and if you've got five minutes you sit and draw what you can see the constant process of looking and drawing and looking and drawing it it just it enhances all your skills it's I mean, athletes do it because they rehearse oh a bob's Actually, is the best example. The guys mm-hmm. on the bobsleigh run. If you look at the one who's steering the bobsleigh at the top, you see him with his eyes shut and he's moving for every corner and everything else down the run. And that's because what he's doing is feeding the mind, the brain, so that it's learning. And you constantly learn by looking and thinking mm-hmm. and practicing. And that's what makes a great painter is someone who walks around with a notepad and draws a lot. <laughs> oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, and so good for cognitive health just in general. Even if you aren't a painter or a draw, you know, a drawer, but you if you practice just doing that, it can really benefit you cognitively as you get older. And even even as as a child, I think it really teaches you how to be more aware of your surroundings and how to interpret them. Is that uh, Linda? Is that something that you teach children? Then, mm-hmm. if I get the chance to, I mean, it's it's not something that's within the curriculum. It's something that I've picked up over time. I mean, the other aspect of psychology that I think is benefits from being mm-hmm. creative and an artist and a draftsman is you watch and you look and yeah. it does improve empathy because you watch other people and instead of being oblivious to their moods or their feelings you're much more aware of what's going on around you because to be a good creative you have to be observant oh okay that is so interesting that, that it really um, enlightens different parts of your brain on empathy and being able to watch people and, and, and grow internally from that. That's really an interesting thing. Well, I'm watching you take notes. <laughs> I, I am taking notes as Linda's talking because it's like I, I had no idea the pineal gland did this. And we're always looking for new ways to help our cognitive skills artistically and, you know, in real life, because I think it's just, it's so uh, important for people as you go through life to be more aware and try to make a better neural connections, like you said, in your brain. I think that's really an important thing. Okay, so um, let's go on to talking a little bit more about your adventure in Italy. So what did you find most gratifying about painting and living in Italy? Um, well, to be perfect, when you, when you come to 
actually you suddenly discover what light can really do for the buildings and textures. I'm, I'm a bit of a closet architect, really. So I, I came to Italy. I didn't really have any intention to draw much or paint. I was coming to work and look at the country. And once you, in northern Italy, there's an awful lot of very ancient architecture. I mean, it's, it's the land of Palladio and Doric mm. columns and everything else. And when we got here, the first thing we did was we went to Venice and Vicenza and Verona and everything so utterly beautiful. It's incredibly difficult to resist the desire to draw and mm-hmm. to capture what you see. And the line and the colours are, are achingly beautiful. I mean, a friend of mine described Italy as being the place where you drive around the corner on a, a road. And most of the roads are empty as well, which is quite yeah. astonishing. Yes. Other than rush hours, there's nobody on the road except some cyclists. But you drive around a corner and you think, my God, that's the most beautiful thing I think I've ever seen. And they drive around the next corner and it's even more beautiful. And so it's, it's, it's very much the need to respond to the beauty. And I think that's that's really what's carried my painting and drawing to a much higher light level, mm-hmm. is, is just this, this overwhelming desire and compulsion to respond to what I see. Oh, very good. Yeah, sounds beautiful. Why don't you tell us about the town you live in? I think it's on the World Heritage yeah, you had mentioned that, Linda. Yeah, it's it's a UNESCO World Heritage Site. It's on the edge of a, a group of hills called the Ugani Hills because northern Italy itself is, is a very flat plain and there's these hills that exist just south of Padova. And in actual fact, what they are is volcanic fissures. So they're, they're little pointy lumps that have exploded out of the ground the rock itself is basalt, um, mm, and the yeah. Romans mm. mined here. Mm-hmm. So there, there's huge chunks taken out of the hillside where it was quarried for a long time. But the hills themselves are really glorious. And I live in a little, what we would in England call it a village, but everything in Italy is designated a city regardless of what size it is. The place I live in is called Baone, which if you look at it on the map, it's actually spelt bar one. Hmm. There's 3,000 people, the most fabulous grocer's shop in the entire world. <laughs> it has its own mill and they mill organic flour and make biscuits and you can go and buy wine for uh, one litre 60. Prosecco, like you can actually bath in Prosecco here. It's one euro 60 for a litre. And the red wine's lovely and it's in the centre of loads of northern Italy's vineyards and there's a a square in the middle and you heard the church bells earlier Mm -hmm. and people are just wonderful they're so kind and we are we are known as the English because they don't (laughs) quite understand why two elderly English people would want to go and live well they're so used to it yeah they're so used to it that they don't see the how special and beautiful it is, and they can't imagine new people coming there I guess well also Italians tend to stay put they are mm-hmm. born in a village and an awful lot of them still will die in the village that they're born in, so the very yeah. strong sense of community so people that have, mm-hmm. have migrated they find it a little bit surprising 
Interesting. So how are the people in your neighborhood? Are they very gregarious or are they more reserved until they get to know you? They, they're actually incredibly friendly. They have a, a very strong sense of humor. They respond very well to you if you actually take the mickey out of yourself. Um, <laughs> coming to a country with no Italian, um, yes. you have to have a sense of humor. Because, you know, I mean, the, the, the first thing that you learn is mia scusi, parli inglese. Yes, um, I'm sure. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. um, and then they sort of look at you a little quizzically and then you sort of grin and, and go, mm, stupido. And then they <laughs> laugh. And that transpires and all speak English anyway. They're testing you, though. Well, yeah, it, actually, it's not really testing. It's more a case of pride. Italians will only speak English when they're absolutely confident they're going to do it perfectly. Oh, my goodness. Uh, they tend to be that. quite apologetic. I mean, they'll speak beautiful English and then go, oh, my English is awful. <laughs> so much better <laughs> yeah. than my Italian. Right. Yeah. So you, always, you, always, you always respond with, that's so much better than my yes. Italian. Uh, yeah, for oh, sure. Oh, totally. Every time. <laughs> you know, uh, as I've seen a lot of your illustrations, and I think, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think you're best known for your illustrations. Do you draw from photographs or do you go on location? Uh, how, do you, how do you handle that? What do you do? Well, to be quite honest, I do use photographs. Because uh, certainly during the lockdown, traveling was non-existent. And my artistic career has been one that's been very much fitted into corners. So photographs have been a tremendous resource. But the other thing I do like to try and do is something called urban sketching. I have a, a great friend who's an architect. And he's in the past taken me out drawing and said, right, no, we're just, we're just going to sit here. We're going to look at this building. We're going to look at the shadows. And you're going to take your pen and you're just going to get on with it. And it's a wonderful skill because, again, it's enhancing the um, the way you look at things. Um, but the thing mm -hmm. about photographs, people tend to condemn the photograph as a resource. But when you realise that uh, Edward Hopper used them yeah, very liberally, yeah, and yep, yep, yep. so did Degas. Degas was fascinated with capturing the whole thing about how horses move. And the introduction of the camera actually allowed him to, one, sort of have horses in movement at the at the racetrack and also to work out how they moved and the fact they always keep one hoof on the ground. It was, I can't remember the name of the photographer. Yeah, he won. It was Maybridge, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, Maybridge, Maybridge, and he won the bet. That's it. <laughs> yes, he did. He was, he was bankrolled to see if he could actually make that happen, and people were betting against it because everybody thought that it had to always be one hoof on the terra firma. And you're mm. right about that. But, you know, when you look at a, I mean, I, I was a commercial photographer for a long time. And when you look at a photograph, it really depends upon how you actually look at it. It, it is a two-dimensional object, but you can look three-dimensionally mm. into it. And, and that appears like what you're doing. And the other thing I want to say about your illustrations, the nice thing about drawing something, and I know myself when we were in Paris and I drew a few things, I remember that drawing way more than I remember taking the photograph of it. And I re it just oh, every yes. time I see my drawing, mm -hmm. yeah. I have this flashback of leaning up against the side of a, a building and painting the or drawing the Art de Triomphe. Art de Triomphe, Art de Triomphe. Yeah. And I, that I remember more than anything else I did just because of that drawing. Tell us about that. I'm sure that's the same case for mm -hmm. you. It's, it's very much the case. I mean, my stepdaughter actually lives in the Orkney Islands to the north of Scotland. And I had a, a wonderful morning drawing 
there where I took myself off into Kirkwall, which is the sort of capital town of Orkney. And I sat outside the main, because they have a cathedral, even though it's a tiny place. I sat outside and I was drawing the buildings there. And you you really get to sort of soak up the history of the place. And, and it, the other thing that's nice is people talk to you. Mm, yeah. mm-hmm. And it's so True. nice to be able to interact with people. But if you actually stopped them in the street and said, tell me about life here, they'd be shocked and go quiet. But because you're drawing something that matters to them, then it gives them a point of reference. And they sort of think, oh, well, why have you got that knobbly bit there? And there's a window missing or, you know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's just this wonderful chance to interact with people and to get a real sense of the place. And it's been the same when I've been drawing in Padova. I did, I did an exercise three years ago called The Hundred Days. And it was actually when we were selling up my house in Plymouth and we had two months traveling and we drove to Scotland before we drove back to Panama. We drive a lot. And so I took my drawing pad with me and my pencils and every night I stopped and I drew something, even if I'd resorted to taking a picture of something on my phone as we were moving along, then I'd record it. But a lot of the time it was actually stopping in little sort of Scottish villages and drawing fishing boats and drawing rivers and all sorts of things. It was a wonderful exercise in terms of training your eye and your draftsmanship skills, but also recording a trick. It's just lovely. I can imagine. That sounds exciting. It does. It Angie, does. I know you have a question for Linda, that. besides your drawings, which are very architectural and colorful, do you create in other mediums? Ah, yes. Yes, I do. I, I, I've been a, a watercolorist and a draftsman for most of my life. But I, since I, certainly since I've been in Italy, I've really focused on using oils. I started off with acrylic paint and I got very frustrated because it dried so quickly. So mm-hmm. I'm yeah. really working on exploring and developing my approach to oil painting, which, again, I think the subject matter in Italy is really encourages you because oils are a wonderful medium for catching tones and the pattern on buildings and shade because the shadows in Italy are incredibly well defined and they're, they're really quite exquisite in their own right. And yeah, oil, oil is one way to really capture that uh, shadow detail. Uh, Monet did that in his gardens, mm-hmm. especially using the violet color. We had a little chat about this when we first talked to you. And then I've seen some posts that you've done. Describe your creative environment. Oh, right. Yes. Yeah. One of my posts in LinkedIn, I actually said, oh, goody, I've got a studio. But in actual fact, initially when I came to the house, because I live in a 15th century house on the side of Mount Tuchelia, which, as I said, is the Ugani Hills. And we have lodges. That's an L-O-G-G-I-A. And there's a sort of sloping lean-to outside of the house. And the light inside the house, because it's very old, there's not a lot of light. So I moved outside in February of last year and started painting. So to start off with, it was a bit mittens and a thick sweater. And then as the temperature rises, so the clothes come off. and uh, But the light is so beautiful that actually painting outside is, is really quite a remarkable experience. And then... In the autumn of last year, Michael, in actual fact, owns a flat in the local one of the local t- 
towns, well, bigger cities than Baronet, a place called Monsolici. And we decided that I, maybe I should turn the large sitting room there into a studio as we weren't using the flat because of COVID. And we were planning on just doing holiday lets from it, which were very difficult. So we decorated it and I painted this room and got it all set up so I could go down there and paint. And to be quite honest, I miss the open air and I miss yeah. the cold. And <laughs> so this, the studio is very much a place where on the odd occasion somebody expresses an interest in seeing the paintings and it's nice to be able to do that. But I'm back outside the house now. Oh, lovely. it's the yeah. only way to create. So nice. I listen to the birds and the church bells. I could see that because that's so organically beautiful. Totally. Now, when we talked to you initially, you mentioned you helped create a book called Lost and Found in Italy. Can you tell us about that book and how you ended up working on the project? Yeah, it was it was it was really quite a remarkable experience, actually. And I would actually commend the um, anthologist who put us all together on this, a lady called Giovanni Bonomo. It was halfway through April last year, and I was sitting listening to a broadcast from a young musician friend of mine from England, and and I suddenly got a ping on Messenger. And the reason behind the ping on Messenger was I'd posted some paintings on one of the many Living in Italy websites, really just to get a response and to see what people thought of them. Mm -hmm. And Giovanna had seen the pictures and she'd done a little bit of poking around on my Facebook page because I, I leave it open for people that want to have a look at the photographs and things and decided that I was somebody that she could work with. So she sent me a text and she said, um, okay, yeah, hello, I'm, I'm interested in how you got there. And I said, it was a bit epic. And she said, oh, great, can you, um, can you write me down 12 pages and, and send them to me? So I got up the following morning and working on the principle that I never say no to anything. It was a beautiful Sunday morning and I, I just did sort of flow of consciousness writing, sat outside at my big stone table under the lodger and I typed and I sent it and I thought, oh, well, this is, this is going to be rubbish. And a week later, she got back and she told me a little bit more about the store of the, the um, project. And essentially what she was doing was looking for women who had thrown caution to the winds and come to Italy because they felt like Italy was, they were drawn to Italy as much as anything and it was where home was. And she has a very unique story as well about how she got here. So over the period of the next month, she collected other people. So there's actually six of us in the book. We've never met. I've never actually met Giovanna. I've had a couple of phone conversations with her. But we've, we've got on incredibly well. And shortly after she read my piece of prose, she said, well, actually, um, how about you do some illustrations for the book? So you do some thumbnail sketches. And so I've illustrated each of the characters in the book. I've done them a drawing. And there's a little cartoon for each one because they all have very distinct stories. And it's a little bit about the illustrations in the book. And it's actually, it's going into, it was published originally in Italy by an Italian publisher who was just keeping it for the Italian market. And it's being published internationally beginning of next month. We're really excited to see that book. And mm -hmm. actually, I think once that book is published, we're going to have, we're going to have her on our podcast. 
Yes. We're kind of excited about that. She's she's superb. She's a tremendous woman who has achieved so much in her life. I I find her quite remarkable. She certainly speaks highly of your illustrations. Oh, yeah. She said your illustrations are a key feature to the what she believes the success of the book, and I, I agree with her. Your illustrations really really add the punch to that book? Well, I I think we're a pretty good team, her and me, and the other ladies that were involved in the book too. Each one has its has their own remarkable tale and the remarkable take on really why people should come to Italy. All right. And you just said something while you were talking about the book that reminds me of our first conversation um, when we were talking to you about being on the podcast and you said something that really, really resonated with us, and that was that you say yes to everything. Tell us how you develop this positive and fun attitude in life. Well, yeah, I mean, to be quite honest, my first husband died over 10 years ago, and it was it, it was pretty horrible. Nobody deserves to die the way he did. He died of bone cancer. I'm so sorry to hear that. Um, yeah, it was, it was pretty shocking at the time. But he, he was an architect and he lived and breathed architecture. And so I sort of stayed at home, brought the kids up and he, he did the architecture thing. Now there's two ways to survive being married to an architect. One is you complain and the other is you embrace architecture. So I think that's probably where my passion for architecture came from. But watching him die so horribly left me with a sense of maybe life is short and Mm -hmm. if you say yes you've got a 50% chance of being right (laughs) oh like that that. so you know oops (laughs) you've got something wrong but at least you tried it now he died wishing that he'd done so many other things and I just decided at that moment in time that whatever it was I'd give it a go and the first challenge to that was I met a a wonderful Catholic priest while he was in hospital who actually Mm -hmm. looked after me and arranged his funeral and actually managed to arrange for me to bury him at sea. The the priest borrowed a yacht from one of the parishioners. How nice And we took Robert's ashes out into Plymouth Sound and scattered him up a river that we, we used to sail and we scattered his ashes in this river. And on the way back, the priest started talking about he was he was going on a pilgrimage to Lords with sick children. It's something that comes out of Plymouth uh, every mm-hmm. year or so, mm-hmm. and they take all these kids there. He looked at me straight in the eyes and he said, "I really don't think it's your sort of thing, Linda." To which he got the response, "Oh, and why not?" Mm-hmm. And mm. six weeks later, I found myself on a pilgrimage to Lords, which in actual fact turned out to have an awful lot in common with the Canterbury Tales. It was yeah, quite a I guess. Experience. I guess. How fascinating is that? I, it was. It was just amazing. I think you're the only person we've ever talked to in our lifetime that has actually been to Lords. Yeah, been we're to very Lourdes. familiar with it. Yeah, um, and wanted to go there. And ourselves. wanted to go there, but how, that's interesting. Yeah, what a great opportunity for you. It's it's the most. Remarkable place. Did you know that actually, you know, Walt Disney's fairy tale castle in Cinderella, he actually based it on the Basilica at Lord's oh. because oh, he went that. to Lord's when he was in his late 20s and basically he was penniless and he was on the brink of a breakdown. And he always maintained that going to Lord's Satan, the Basilica there actually just looks like the fairy tale castle. 
which is really weird when you turn up there and you see it. And it's it's a phenomenal town of contrast because in the town itself, it's full of plastic Madonnas and, and bronze crosses and flashy mm-hmm. lights and lots of cheap lace. I was going to say curios, you, right? Curios, yeah. Yeah, and then you go <laughs> to the um, Basilica itself and the intensity of the belief of the people who've gone there and they've taken sick relatives there. And it's, I, I actually went as a photographer. I took photographs of the entire, entire pilgrimage. It's, it was a phenomenal experience, really quite remarkable. I think probably the most memorable thing was there's a, an underground basilica there that holds 20,000 people. Mm. Oh, my goodness. And because it was Whit Week, the basilica was full of pilgrims from four different nations. And when you hear four different sort of, you know, 20,000 people saying the mass in four different languages Mm -hmm. and it still flows and you know exactly where you are. It's it's quite some experience. I can imagine, you know, we're going to leave that continent if we're going to head very far south and talk to you about your, a little bit about Australia. You have a real interesting story about what happened to your home and your property. You lived in Australia. Well, Michael had this property for quite some period of time. I can't remember exactly how much it was. And I, I never thought of going to Australia. In fact, it was the furthest, furthest from my mind. And then I met and married an Australian. And it was actually in the Adelaide Hills, just north of Adelaide, again, surrounded by vineyards. And when originally he bought it, there was 80 acres. And by the time I met him, he'd got 40. And he, he, he was tired. He had enough of actually minding property. And his daughter was there at that time. And, and 40 acres of wilderness is quite a lot to deal with. So she'd actually rented it out to a couple of ladies, the bottom sort of 10 acres to a couple of ladies who rescued wombats. And wombats you either love or you hate and Mm -hmm. and these ladies were totally committed to looking after them and then when Michael said actually look you know uh, Martha had gone to the Orkney Islands and Michael said well there's no point in keeping this I've got to sell it the ladies who ran the wombat sanctuary in actual fact got incredibly excited at the prospect they had somebody who would fund them so they bought the whole of the place is called Faxley and turned it into the world's biggest wombat sanctuary. Ah. Wow. That's so different. You wouldn't expect that to happen to your property. No, you wouldn't. No, you really? know, <laughs> no. And most people would find it a real challenge to leave the comfort of their home or where they grew up and the place they'd been living into, living at for many years. Uh, do you ever have any second thoughts about the move you made to Italy? I think it's, it, it, you have to recognize what you left. Now, what I loved about England isn't there anymore. I've, I've moved around, I'm coming up to 63 now, so I can remember London when London was actually, it was a nice, it was a nice place to be. It was reasonably gentle and people were friendly and very much like Italy. And then I moved to Cornwall and I had the very best of Cornwall in the late 70s up until the early 90s when again, mm-hmm. it was before it became became a tourist attraction, a very strongly tourist attraction place. Uh, then after Robert died, I moved into Plymouth. And everything was getting crowded. And everybody 
getting more and more preoccupied with what they owned and careers and that seems to be going on all over the planet. The you know, world. Things are, again, world yeah. it's just people, it's getting clouded, crowded where they are, and they want to find place where they can be, have some peace. And, but, and enjoy the environment. Right. I want to ask you, before we get too close to our time here, where, where do you see yourself in five years, Linda? Honestly, I haven't got a clue. <laughs> I, I I live each day as it comes. I've learned. I didn't when I bought this place in the hills. I didn't think I was going to be trapped here and allowed to have a very sh- short distance outside for twelve. You know, for twelve months ago, I I never saw Brexit coming. Coming to Italy was an accident, but it's actual fact. It's turned out to be a fabulous experience. Mm-hmm. I found home. So I might travel. I might not. I, but I don't know. But that makes it all. A, yeah, but, but ultimately you see yourself staying there. And now Angie's going to ask you our most favorite question to ask people. Yeah, and it's always fascinating to hear what people are going to say. So um, we're going to ask you the question we ask all of our guests. If you could sit on a park bench and chat with anyone from the past, who would it be? In actual fact, there were two painters that I fell in love with in Australia because there's a school of painting. Australia has its own impressionist school. And there's two guys, there's Tom Roberts and Arthur Streeton. And they went out into the outback and they painted what they saw. And it's so alive and you can you can smell the dust and feel the heat and see the movement of the horses and the steer and the, the Pacific lapping on beaches. And it's so simple and so well observed and... They they embraced their world, and I'd just like to talk to them about you know being at one with what they see and what they wanted to capture. You know, I think both Angie and I have been. This has been a really interesting conversation, especially considering your career and what you're doing and, and your uh, life experiences. And life experiences. Angie, what are you going to say about how people can learn more? If you would like to know more about Linda Winter and her artwork, we will have links in the show notes and also under the show guest tab on thoughtrowpodcast.com so everyone can learn more about her. And please try and connect with her on social media. Her images that she makes are beautiful, totally. You've been absolutely wonderful to chat with, Linda, and I'm sorry we're kind of running out of time. It's been an absolute pleasure. It's been a real joy. Oh, good. So glad you were here with us today, and I hope Everyone will enjoy your story and, again, learn more about you on our website. Yeah, very inspirational, Linda. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. It's been a joy. Okay, bye-bye. I'm really glad you tuned in today. We hope you enjoyed the thoughts and ideas we shared with you. We post a new podcast every week, so remember to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss an episode. So it's bye for now from my husband Rod and I, wishing everyone... A great day.